Well, please take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 115. Psalm 115, and I want to read one verse as we begin this morning, a verse that is very near and dear to my heart, and not just to my heart, it's also very near and dear to my wife's heart. Uh, It's a verse that's near and dear to our hearts as a couple. Uh, When we were planning our wedding and thinking about how we wanted that to go down, and uh, what that would look like, what that would feel like, what that would sound like, the Lord directed us to this verse, and we realized that this was not just a great verse for a wedding day, this, was a, this is a great verse for uh, life, married life. And so, this is a verse that um, was on all of our invitations, all of our programs, uh, and it's a verse that we continue to reference whenever we sign a card together. Uh, we write down this verse. Um, it's a verse that we actually have on a beautiful piece of artwork above our bed, uh, in our bedroom. Uh, this is our life verse, I guess. I have my own life verse. Kelly has her own life verse. This is our couple, our married life verse. Psalm 115, verse 1. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory because of your loving kindness, because of your truth. Lord, we come before you again this morning and we're so grateful for this opportunity to worship and sing songs about your glory, to honor you and to praise you and give you the glory and honor that is due your name. And Lord, I confess that Every time I get up behind this pulpit, I battle with my glory versus your glory. And how ironic, in especially this morning, seeking glory for myself when preaching a message about your glory. And so, Father, I pray that you would be the one glorified today above all others and above all else as we consider this massive, weighty subject of your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, this week I have the privilege of speaking again at the True Life Conference, or I should say the True Church Conference, uh, which is hosted by Grace Life Church of the Shoals in Muscle Shoals, Alabama. And the theme of this year's conference is Nine Maxims of a True Church. And each speaker is going to preach on one or two of the following themes. And these were the nine maxims that Pastor Jeff Noblet gave uh, us to choose from. Uh, Bible-saturated, spirit-empowered, glory of God-focused, Christ-honoring, preaching the word-based, local church-centered, world missions impassioned, every member ministry, home life discipleship. Now, any of those subjects would be exciting for me to preach on, but when asked to pick one, my mind immediately gravitated to the glory of God focus. It's a subject that I'm very passionate about. It's a subject that um, ever since we started this church, I've been passionate about. 
I mentioned uh, at the annual meeting that this fall we'll be celebrating the 25th anniversary of Lakeside Bible Church, which is hard to believe. Where has the time gone? On the very first Sunday that we met over in the elementary school cafetorium, which is now the Montgomery ISD um, administrative offices, I preached a message titled, The Birth of a New Church, based on Acts 2, which describes the birth of the church on the day of Pentecost. It seemed like a, an appropriate text for the first day of a new church. But the following five Sundays, I preached a series of messages on the glory of God. And I wanted those of us who had set out to plant this church to understand that our primary goal, our ultimate priority, our all-consuming passion was to glorify God. In my mind, it was absolutely essential that Lakeside Bible Church perceive itself as an institution established for one purpose and one purpose only, and that is the glory of God. That was the burning commitment of the men God used in the 15 and 1600s to bring the beliefs and practices of the church in their, day, their day back into conformity with God's word. And the main burden of the reformers was to recover and reaffirm the biblical gospel, which had been covered up by church traditions and corrupted by church leaders and church councils. And so they put their lives on the line to confront the false teaching that had crept into the church about how someone is saved from sin, death, and hell. Maintaining man-made rituals and traditions was the means by which a person was, or earned their salvation. The only hope a person had of going to heaven was living a, a life of good works or having someone else pray or buy their way out of purgatory. Mary and the saints and, and the priests were worshipped and honored as human mediators between God and man. Christ was re-sacrificed during every mass, the, denying that his finished work on the cross is sufficient for our salvation. And so the reformers crafted five phrases that, that, that summarize what they believe the Bible taught regarding salvation and also to distinguish themselves from the heretical soteriology of the Roman Catholic Church. You've probably heard of these phrases. They're commonly referred to as the five solas. Sola, the Latin word for only or alone. So you have number one, sola scriptura. Scripture alone is the foundation of our salvation. Sola, solus Christus, Christ alone. Christ alone is the mediator of our salvation. Sola gratia, grace alone. Grace alone is the source of our salvation. A sola fide, faith alone, the means of our salvation is by faith alone. And then soli deo gloria, glory to God alone, the goal of our salvation is God's glory. And this was, this was the reformer's way of affirming that according to scripture, a person is saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for God's glory alone. Now all these truths are clearly taught in the scriptures. And so no reformer or any other human being should be given credit for these doctrines. But at the same time, these precious truths had been all but lost before the time of the Protestant Reformation. And in God's sweet providence, he chose certain men at, at a certain time in history to rediscover the very gospel itself. And these truths are not 
only essential for our salvation, but they also serve as the foundation for any true church. One of my favorite books that I ever read is by James Montgomery Boyce, who's now with the Lord. He was the pastor of uh, 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. He wrote a book called Whatever Happened to the Gospel of Grace, Rediscovering the Doctrines that Shook the World. And it's a book where he unpacks the five solas of Scripture. But this is what he said. Let me read for you a quote. He said, without these five confessional statements, we do not have a true church, and certainly not one that will survive very long. For how can any church be a true and faithful church if it does not stand for Scripture alone, is not committed to a biblical gospel, and does not exist for God's glory? A church without these convictions has ceased to be a true church, whatever else it may be. Well, I pray that by God's grace, we are a true church because we have these convictions and we stand in the rich theological heritage of the Reformation. And that heritage is preserved for us in creeds and confessions that I mentioned earlier, like the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which was written by English and and Scottish pastors and theologians back in 1647 to educate their church members in the basics of the Christian faith through a series of questions and answers. I imagine some of you were raised on the Westminster uh, Catechism. I know our kids were. We had a little green booklet um, next to the kitchen table, and during meals, we would pull it out, and we would go through these questions and answers just to teach our kids sound theology. Well, you may have never used the Westminster Catechism or even maybe even heard of it, but I guarantee that you are familiar with the first and most famous question and answer, which is what? What is the chief end of man? Answer, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And so the reformers, that's where they, it all started with that. Because they understood that the overarching theme of the Bible is the glory of God. And so they sought to make that the main focus of the church and the main focus of the life of every believer. God couldn't have made it any clearer in his word that the supreme purpose of the church and the supreme purpose of our lives is to bring him glory. I want to read for you some verses from both the Old and New Testament, and I know some will say, oh, that was way too many cross-references. He kind of overdid it this morning. I'm doing that on purpose. I'm, I'm, I'm bringing the dump truck, okay? And I, wanna just, I just want to dump it all on you so you feel the weight of this concept of the glory of God. So don't try to keep up with me. Maybe just write down these references, but listen carefully to this theme throughout the Old and New Testament. Psalm 29, verses one and two. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. I already read Psalm 151. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. Romans eleven thirty three. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Romans sixteen twenty seven. To the only wise God through Jesus Christ be the glory forever. First Corinthians six twenty. For you have been bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body. First Corinthians ten thirty one. Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. In Ephesians chapter 1, when Paul was 
describing God's plan of salvation three times, he said it was all to the praise of his glory. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 21, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Philippians 4, 20, now to our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. 1 Timothy 1, 17, now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. 2 Timothy 4, 18, Paul said, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10, as each one has received a special gift, employed in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God, whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God, whoever serves is to do as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Second Peter 3.18, we're gonna get here just in a few weeks. This is the last verse. This is how it all ends. Second Peter 3.18, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Jude 24 and 25, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. And then of course we get to the book of Revelation where God's glory is mentioned multiple times, like in Revelation 1 verse 6, John said he has made us to be a kingdom priest to his God and Father. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. And then in his great apocalyptic vision, he saw the heavens opened, Revelation 5, verse 11, that I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing and ever created thing which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them. I heard saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. In Revelation 14, 7, John records how angels will be flying over the earth proclaiming the gospel, and their message is very simple. Fear God and give him glory. Revelation 19, verse 1, Leading up to the marriage supper of the Lamb, it says, after these things I heard something like a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Typically you go to a wedding and it's the bride who gets the glory, right? She comes down the aisle, everybody stands up, Everybody turns, watches her as she goes. She's the focus of everyone's attention. Well, in heaven, it's gonna be different. The focus is gonna be on the bridegroom, Jesus Christ. He's the one that's gonna get all the glory, not us. And then Revelation 21, verse 23, and the city has no need of the sun. This is the city of Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem where we're gonna spend eternity with God. It says, the city has no need of sun or of the moon or shine on it for the glory of God has illuminated it. 
So we will be basking in the glory of God for all eternity. And there will be no need for sun or moon or any other lights because that will be all the light we need. So all that to say, God not only deserves glory, but he also demands glory. And if we refuse to glorify him, or worse, to seek to glorify ourselves and and rob him of the glory that is due him and, and him alone, he will deal with us accordingly. And I hope you're willing to admit this morning that you're a glory hound just like I am. We're all glory hounds. We, we all like glory. But there's some stories in the Bible that should call us glory hounds into check. For example, the story of Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 4. Turn there with me. I want you to see... Uh, a couple stories back to back here in Daniel chapter 4 and Daniel chapter 5. You remember Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, got way too big for his britches. And he had already built a statue, 90 foot tall, asked, told everybody, commanded everybody they needed to bow down and worship him. He had another dream about a tree, this great tree that grew up and, and all the people of the earth and all the beasts of the, of the fields came and, and, and found their sustenance from this, from this tree and they found, their, they found shade and food and, and, in, in, in this tree and, and then all of a sudden the tree got chopped down and, and all the branches were cut off and all the beasts fled and the birds flew away and all, was, all that was left was a stump and of course, Nebuchadnezzar was curious. I wonder what that dream meant. And so he called his Chaldeans and conjurers and soothsayers, and none of them could interpret it. And so he got Daniel to come and interpret the dream. And he said, Oh, by the way, King, you are that tree. And uh, you are that tree that grew up, and, and, and really all the nations of the earth are coming to you. You are, you know, the most powerful ruler in the whole world. Everybody knows about Babylon. Everybody's dependent on Babylon. But just so you know, God's going to cut you down. Because all this has gone to your head. And then look at verse 28. This is uh, Daniel chapter 4, verse 28. All this happened to Nebuchadnezzar the king. Twelve months later, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. The king reflected and said, Is this not Babylon the great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? That's when you step away from Nebuchadnezzar because the lightning's about to strike. It was all about him. And while the word was in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared sovereignty has been removed from you and you will be driven away from the mankind and your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field. You will be given grass to eat like cattle and seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows on it whomever he wishes. And immediately the word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled and he was driven away from mankind and began eating grass like a cattle, like cattle, and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. 
And this is the story of Beauty and the Beast, right? He turned into a beast. And that's what happens when you try to take glory away from God. He turns you into a cow. This is essentially what he did for seven years. He's out grazing in front of his castle, and everybody's going, what happened to the king Nebuchadnezzar? I don't know. But God, in his mercy, restored his sanity in response to Nebuchadnezzar finally learning his lesson that ultimately life is not about him, was not about him and his glory, it was about God and his glory. And God graciously restored him. And I think we're gonna have the privilege of meeting Nebuchadnezzar in heaven. That's just my personal opinion. Because if you read the rest of chapter five, it sure sounds like he got saved. Not so much his son Belshazzar, chapter five, You remember this story, Belshazzar, the king, held a great feast for a thousand of his nobles, and he was drinking wine in the presence of the thousand. When Belshazzar tasted the wine, he gave orders to bring the gold and silver vessels which Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple, which was in Jerusalem, to the king, that the king and his nobles, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought the gold vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God, which was in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. By the way, you know why they... Nations would take stuff out of the nation, out of the temple of the nation they conquered and bring it back to their temple. That was a way of saying, hey, our God is bigger than your God. Our God defeated your God, right? So we're gonna bring your stuff back and put it at the feet of our gods. It's blasphemous to begin with. But if that wasn't bad enough, now Belshazzar says, hey, let's, go, let's, let's get those things and then let's bring them out here. In other words, he was making a mockery of the God of Israel. And it says, they drank the wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Again, another opportunity to step away. Because when you start to, to praise anything other than the one true God of the universe, you're fixing to have a problem. And notice verse 5. Suddenly the fingers of a man's hand emerged and began writing opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the back of the hand that did the writing. Then the king's face grew pale and his thoughts alarmed him and his hips joints, hip joints went slack and his knees began knocking together. He was terrified. So he called together the conjurers and the diviners, tried to get them to read the, the inscription. Hey, what does this mean? And, you know, how, what does it say? What does it mean? Well, nobody could tell him, and so the queen shows up and says, hey, relax, honey. Uh, there's a guy that used to work for your dad. Uh, his name's Daniel, and he, he'll, he'll tell you what this means. So Daniel shows up, and Belshazzar's like, hey, I'll give you whatever. I'll give you this, and I'll give you this, and if you could just tell me what this means. And I love the way Daniel responds, verse 17 of Daniel 5. He says, keep your gifts for yourself, or give your rewards to someone else. However, I will read the inscription to the king and make the interpretation known to him. He says, O king, the most high God, granted sovereignty, grandeur, glory, and majesty to Nebuchadnezzar, your father. Because of the grandeur which he bestowed on him, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language feared and trembled before him. Whomever he, he wished, he killed, and whomever he wished, he spared alive, and whomever he wished, he elevated, and whomever he wished, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit became so proud that he behaved arrogantly, he was deposed from his royal throne and his glory was taken away from him. 
And he was also driven away from mankind, and his heart was made like that of beasts, and his dwelling place was with the wild donkeys. He was given grass to eat like cattle, and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he recognized the Most High God is the rule is rule, ruler over the realm of mankind, and that he sets over it whomever he wishes. So he gives Belshazzar a little history lesson. Now let me just remind you about your dad. I'm sure that that was uh, legend, stuff of legend, right? Babylonian legend of his dad, the cow king. But then notice he says, verse 22, yet you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, even though you knew all this, in other words, you didn't go to school on your dad. You should have. But you have exalted yourself against the Lord of heaven, and they have brought the vessels of his house before you, and you and your nobles, your wives and your concubines have been drinking wine from them, and you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood and stone, which do not see, hear, or understand, but the God in whose hand are your life breath in all your ways, don't miss this, you have not glorified. The God who holds your life in his hand, you have not glorified. He says, and the hand was sent from him, and this inscription was written out. That same hand that holds your very life wrote this message. And this is the inscription. Many, many, tekel, you farsin. This is the interpretation of the message. Many, God has numbered your kingdom and put an end to it. Tekel, you have been... Uh, weighed on the scales and found deficient. Perez, your kingdom has been divided and given over to the Medes and the Persians. Then Belshazzar gave orders and they clothed Daniel with pur purple and put a necklace of gold around his neck and issued a proclamation concerning him that he now had authority as the third ruler in the kingdom. So good for Daniel, not so good for Belshazzar. That same night, Belshazzar the Chaldean king was slain. So Darius the Mede received the kingdom at about the age of 62. So, God turned Nebuchadnezzar into a cow. Belshazzar was conquered and killed. And my favorite example is actually in the New Testament, Acts chapter 12. Turn there quickly with me, Acts chapter 12. And here we find the story of another king, King Herod, who according to Acts chapter 12, verse 1, was on a rampage in many ways, like the Apostle Paul was, trying to shut down the early church. And it says, Now about that time Herod the king laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them. And he had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. So he killed the leader of the church in Jerusalem, James. And, now, and he had, and he had uh, Peter in jail awaiting execution, and we know the story, right? He was, uh, the, the people were praying for him, uh, and uh, God sent an angel to release him, and uh, he, he escaped Herod's hand there. Verse 18, now when day came, there was no small disturbance among the soldiers as to what could have become of Peter. When Herod had searched for him and had not found him, he examined the guards in order that they be led away to execution. In other words, you let my... You let my prisoner go. I can't execute him now, so I'm going to execute you in, in his place. Nice guy. And to show he had no conscience, he went on vacation. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and was spending time there. If you've ever been to Israel, that's usually the first stop uh, the tour bus makes is in Caesarea, which is a seaside, uh, beautiful location just north of Tel Aviv, 
where Herod would kind of go and, and relax. It was kind of a resort. It was Margaritaville. That's where he would go and uh, hang out. And uh, so that's where he went. Verse 20, now he was very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, which is an area to the north there of Israel. With one accord, they came to him, and having won over Blasphus, Blasphus, the king's chamberlain, they were asking for peace because their country was fed by the king's country. So they were totally dependent on King Herod for their livelihood. Verse 21, on an appointed day, Herod, having put on his royal apparel, took his seat on the rostrum and began delivering an address to them. Some commentators say that, uh, according to historical records, that, that, um, that royal apparel, that royal robe that he wore was some kind of uh, expensive uh, metal or jewel, jeweled uh, uh, encased uh, robe, and it just, the, the sun reflected off it, so he looked like he was just glowing. And so the people kept crying out, the voice of a God and not of man. So they're essentially worshiping Herod. And guess what? He liked it. He received it. It's one of those, oh, no, 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 right? Tell me more. And immediately it says, an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not, what? Give God the glory. And oh, by the way, he was eaten by worms and died. So Herod was struck dead, eaten by worms. And if you're thinking, what is going on here with these guys getting turned into cows and getting eaten by worms? Well, there's a very clear commentary on why this happened. Isaiah 48.11, turn there. Isaiah 48.11. This is a verse that could be easily passed over in the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 48, verse 11. God, through the prophet Isaiah, said this, For my own sake, for my own sake, I will act. For how can my name be profaned, and my glory I will not give to another? I think that's one of the most radical verses in the entire Bible. Because what it teaches is that God is jealous for his glory. He doesn't share his glory with anyone. He doesn't want anyone else to get any glory. He wants all the glory for himself. In fact, God's number one goal or passion is to glorify himself. Everything he does in this world is to magnify and exalt himself. He cares about himself more than anything else or anyone else. I know some of you are having a hard time with that, with some of the things I just said, because first of all, you don't like people like that. Nobody likes a show-off, right? I'm not implying here that God is enamored with himself or that he's on some ego trip. He's not arrogant. He's not self-centered. You also probably think, well, wait a minute. I thought the Bible told us not to be like that. Well, the rules of humility that apply to us don't apply to God. 
It's wrong for us to try to glorify ourselves, but it's not wrong for God to glorify himself. And I think it might help if we define God's glory. The glory of God, I think, could be simply defined as the sum of who God is. Everything we know to be true about God, all the ways he's revealed himself to us in Scripture, that's his glory. It's a composite of all of his attributes, his love, his grace, his justice, his wrath, his, his, his power, his faithfulness, his goodness. It's all wrapped together under one big attribute, and that's glory. And the glory of God is intrinsic. In other words, it's, it's part of who he is, as light is to sun and as blue is to the sky, as wet is to water, so glory is to God. You, you don't make the sun light, it is light. You, you don't make the sky blue, it is blue. You don't make water wet, it is wet. And, and you don't make God glorious, he is glorious, period. And in contrast, our glory... Man's glory is granted to us. The only glory a king has is, is when you give him a crown or a robe and you, you let him sit up on a throne. But if you take those things away, right, and you put him next to a beggar on the street, you can't tell the difference between the two. Why? Because that glory is not intrinsic. It's not who they are, who we are. But the glory of God has, but the glory that God has is his very essence. You can't take it away from him. He is the God of glory, Psalm 29, verse 3. And so because God is the only one who has intrinsic glory, he's the only one who deserves to be glorified and the only one who can demand to be glorified. He has every right to show off his glory at any time and in any way that he so chooses. He has every right to be jealous in guarding his glory from those who try to steal it from him. Again, simply stated, it's God has a passion for his glory. God's ultimate priority is to glorify himself. And he expects everyone else to have a passion for his glory and to make it their ultimate priority to glorify him, not themselves. I walked in this morning with a book on top of my Bible, and a young man saw it, and he goes, oh, that's, that looks really good. Yeah, I just, I'm, I'm really learning about, you know, it's, that life's all about, you know, it's all about God's glory, not my glory. And I was like, listen, little bro, <laughs> If that's the only thing you ever learn from God's word, from, from the, the scripture or from this church, that's all you'll ever need. You figured it out. That's, that's number one most important foundational truth in life, that life is not about you. It's about God. It's not about your glory. It's about God's glory. And you, as one of his creatures, bringing him glory. You were created for his glory. We were created for his glory, not for our own selves. The book he saw was this book by John Piper called God's Passion for His Glory, Living the Vision of Jonathan Edwards. And um, what this book is is essentially a book-length introduction to a famous essay that Jonathan Edwards wrote, which he titled, The End for Which God Created the World. That's Jonathan Edwards. The End for Which God Created the World. What do you think the answer 
of that is. But what is the end for which God created the world? His glory. And so, John Piper helps us unpack uh, the brilliant mind of Jonathan Edwards. Uh, if you've read any of, John, any of John Piper's books, you know that, uh, you know, by his own admission, he's just, he's just basically restating Jonathan Edwards, maybe in simpler, modern terms. I'm thankful for John Piper because he is smart enough to unravel a lot of what Jonathan Edwards was writing about, which I have a hard time understanding at points, and uh, he made it accessible to us. And he said, basically, this is what Jonathan Edwards meant by what he said here. And, and the bottom line is, God has a passion for his glory. Several years ago, I read a biography of Jonathan Edwards. It was written by Steve Lawson, who does a great job uh, writing these little mini biographies of, of great men and women of the past. But this uh, particular biography about Jonathan Edwards was titled, The Unwavering Resolve of Jonathan Edwards. And, and I was just, I remember just being deeply stirred by the compelling description that Lawson gave of what drove this 18th century pastor, excuse me, theologian. Let me read you just one quote here. He said, Edwards lived with one driving passion, soli deo gloria, for the glory of God alone. His master purpose in all things, his overarching aim in all of life was to bring honor and majesty to the name of God. He desired to exalt the greatness of God with every breath he drew, with every step he took, every thought, every attitude, every choice, and every undertaking must be for the glory of God, end quote. Didn't take long for Edwards to be captured by the glory of God shortly after he was saved. It became his consuming passion, his singular focus in life, at the age of 18, think about this, anybody who's out there that's you know, kind of around 18, just kind of in your teen years, having only been saved for a year, okay, so he's a brand new believer, essentially, he crafted 70 resolutions. You're familiar with that, right? Edward's 70 resolutions, classic literature there, um, that were really an expression of his all-consuming desire for God to be glorified in every area of his life. And his habit was to read over these resolutions on a weekly basis as a way to examine and evaluate his walk with the Lord and in order to, to gauge his progress towards attaining his goal of glorifying God in every thought, word, and deed. Let me give you a couple examples. Here's the first resolution. Right out of the gate, this is, what, he's, this is what, what is on his mind and on his heart. Resolved that I will do whatsoever I think to be the most to God's glory. In other words, I am gonna do, I am resolved, I am committed to do whatever I think will bring God the most glory. That's what I'm gonna do. And if I don't think it's gonna bring God's glory, I'm not gonna do it. Resolution four, resolve never to do any manner of thing but what tends to the glory of God. I'm only gonna do that which glorifies God. Resolution 27, resolve never willingly omit anything except the omission be for the glory of God. Again, uh, if, if I don't think something's gonna glorify or honor God, I'm not gonna do it. 
Even the most mundane areas of his life, he desired to regulate for God's glory the use of his time, uh, his eating, his drinking. Uh, Resolution 6, resolved never to lose one moment of time, but improve it the most profitable way I possibly can. He wanted to honor God in the way he lived every moment of his life. Didn't want to waste a single moment. Resolution 20, resolved to maintain the strictest temperance in eating and drinking. Okay, we can forget about that one. He even doubles down on it later in Resolution 40, resolved to inquire every night before I go to bed whether I've acted in the best way I possibly could with respect to eating and drinking. When's the last time you went to bed and you're laid there thinking about, okay, what did I have for breakfast? Did that glorify God? What did I have for lunch? Did that glorify God? What did I have for dinner? Did that glorify God? And how about that snack in between breakfast and lunch? And how about that snack between lunch and dinner? And how about that after dinner drink or whatever, right? The midnight snack, right? So he's just, uh, he's asking himself, did I act in the best possible way with respect to eating and drinking? Which seems to me to be a very literal and practical application of what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10.31, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. That's where he got that from. He evaluated everything in his life in light of God's glory. And he may have actually asked himself the question in every situation or in every decision, will this glorify God? How different would your life be, would my life be, would our lives be if we resolve to ask ourselves this question before doing anything or saying anything or watching anything or listening to anything or eating anything or drinking anything or purchasing anything or going anywhere or spending time with someone, we ask ourselves, will this glorify God? It's kind of like the WWJD movement years ago, right? What would Jesus do? Had little bracelets and stuff. What would this be? WTGG? Yeah, I don't know. You can start a bracelet movement if you want with that. WTGG. Will this glorify God? What a great question. And see, when glorifying God becomes the consuming passion of your life, it will influence every part of your life. Who you marry the school you attend, how you invest your money, what what job you take, what ministry you pursue, what movies you watch, what music you listen to, what clothes you wear. Will this glorify God? You see, the glory of God relates to every area of our lives and he is honored or dishonored by everything we do or don't do. And I think too often Christians are guilty of compartmentalizing Our lives, we have our Sunday morning life and then we have the rest of the week. What we do on Sunday has no connection with what we do the other six days of the week. And we're prone to make a distinction between the the sacred and the secular as the reformers referred to those two categories. We've got our sacred things like reading the Bible, praying, going to church. Then we've got our secular life going to work, playing golf, going to the mall, cutting the grass, watching a movie. 
But God makes no distinction between what we consider sacred things or secular things. They're, they're all the same to him, and they all affect him equally. And so he must do everything to the glory of God. Whether that's selling a part, fixing an engine, bidding a job, building a house, digging a ditch, teaching a class, diagnosing a, a, a patient's a problem and prescribing medicine, driving a truck, trading a stock, feeding the animals, plowing a field, flying an airplane, drilling for oil, wrapping an athlete's ankle, caring for a sick child, counseling a, a needy person, surfing the internet, designing a piece of jewelry, waiting on tables, arresting a criminal, changing a dirty diaper, making dinner, doing your homework, watching TV, going to the movies, listening to the music, reading a book, looking at a magazine, shopping at the mall, teeing off, catching a bass, blowing a duck out of the sky with your shotgun. I mean, you, it, it, did I get you? Are you there somewhere? I was just thinking about you guys and where, if, if you didn't hear yourself in there, fill in the blank, because it all applies. I don't care what you could come up with, you should be doing it for the glory of God. Years ago, I read a book by John MacArthur called The Ultimate Priority. Guess what it's about? The glory of God. Let me read, for you, read uh, just a quote from that book as we close. He says, when we purpose to devote our lives to God's glory, we cannot possibly seek our own glory. Devoting our lives to God's glory means sacrificing self. It means we prefer God above all else. The true worshiper does not think about how much it's going to help him, how much money he's going to get, how much success he will realize, how much fame he will have, how many friends he can garner, how spiritually he may appear to others, and so on. The pursuit of the glory of God is a purely selfless, lonely pursuit. The one who has committed his life to the glory of God is consumed with zeal, not for his own reputation or self-image, but for the glory and majesty of Almighty God to whom he has devoted his whole being to worship. That is the only kind of life that is acceptable to God. Let's pray. Father, we do desire that our lives would be acceptable and pleasing to you. And we confess that uh, we're all glory hounds, that in some way um, we're always seeking our own glory, which is robbing you of the glory that only belongs to you. And so, Lord, I just ask that you would make glorifying you our one consuming passion that it would be our singular focus in life. And Lord, we also know that when, when we're devoted to your glory, we're not just going to be passionate that you get glory from our lives, but we're going to be passionate that you get glory from everyone else's life in this world. And so that you would motivate us to want to make your glory known to others and to live our lives in such a way that everyone will know and understand that God deserves to be glorified. And so you would continue to give us a burden for the lost and taking this passion for your glory to the nations. 
or to our neighbor or to work this week or to school this week. It seems like your glory is so... um, It's not often thought about as much as it should be. But I pray that that would not be true of our lives, that we would think about it not just often, but always, always wanting to glorify you, always wanting you to be glorified, always wanting to be bringing um, you glory in everything we say and everything we do. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.